You're listening to At Large, a global affairs podcast brought to you by China U.S. Focus. Thanks for joining us. And here's your host, James Chow. I'm in Hong Kong, more specifically in Central District, looking down on the Legislative Council building and the square that surrounds it over there. And up where I'm sitting beside me is Chen Dingding, a professor of international relations at Jinan University in Guangzhou, and also the founder of a think tank that's now three years old called the Intellisier Institute. His work concerns Chinese foreign policy, human rights, politics, and of course, Asian security. And I'm delighted that Professor Chen can be with me here today because he's emerged as a very useful voice, not only in unpacking the complexities that have characterized the China-U.S. relationship, particularly in the past couple of years and through different administrations. But now, when many people are talking about what's happening with the trade war, how do you make sense of the dispute? What's going to happen in the longer term with the tariffs, and why we should all be concerned? So, Professor Chen, I know that very shortly you'll be heading over to Berlin, where you're a non-resident fellow at the Global Public Policy Institute. What do you think they'll ask you there, being non-Chinese and a non-American crowd, and what would you be able to offer them in terms of new knowledge? Uh, thank you, James. It's nice to be with you here today. Well, I think、uh, for Berlin, for Germany, and for other countries, one major question they constantly ask themselves and、uh, and are very very interested in, in is how would China reshape the new global order, so to speak. So that's why I think they need a, a perspective. They need a voice from China to、uh, basically engage、uh, with them. And I think that's the purpose of my next visit to Berlin. But I'm not sure I have the right answer to this question. But anyway, it's a, it's an opportunity to, to voice our perspectives, and hopefully we can learn something、uh, through the process. So, if someone did come up to you and said to you、uh, exactly that, you know, what kind of role would China play? What would be the drivers for that?、Uh, and how do you see that new world order that you mentioned there emerging? If not the whole answer, what are some aspects and nuances that you would share with them? Well, I think the simple answer would be, in my view, that China would increasingly play an important role, and China would increasingly play a more active role in shaping or reshaping the world order or new world order. I think that's something、uh, sort of like a consensus that pretty much everybody would agree on. But、uh, in terms of specific moves or specific、uh, policy directions, we are、uh, in disagreement because again, it's about the future and it's, it's not here yet. We don't know what would be、uh, the future like、uh, from you know, the you know this moment.、Uh, so, but I think、uh, the other question is,、uh, how should China itself? View this relationship with the rest of the world. I think we have a lot of debates within China, with regard to what's the proper role for China to play. Whether we should,、uh, uh, as some people seem to imply, we should go back to the old model of、uh, whether you call it a tributary system or China-centered perspective, or some other people would say, let's you know go with the、uh, what we. Would like to call sometimes uh, merging the checks, uh, uh, rule, and meaning that we should uh, uh, 
uh, try to integrate ourselves into the current global uh, system, global order. Let's walk back a little bit because you've mentioned so many interesting points mm-hmm. already. Let me start off with what you talked about, the new world order. And you said what would be a widely accepted consensus that China does play an expanding role within that space. I just want to pause and question that assumption. Now with a trade war, for example, does China hold that same level of influence as it has done for a number of years? Particularly, let's just imagine post-2008 Olympics, using that as one historical place mark in recent times, when China's growth was truly accelerating, and not only economically, but socially, on the international stage, with the emergence of so many multilateral mechanisms that it's set up since then. Uh, Does China really have the same influence going forward when I think, to be honest, it's struggling with this onslaught of tariffs that it's now having to respond to? Well, that's a very good question. Obviously, we are in the very early stage of this you know, ongoing trade war, so the consequences of that uh, are very difficult to predict at this moment. But if this uh, trade war or this trend of uh, trade or economic uh, conflicts or frictions continue, then we might indeed expect a new scenario in which China's throws, uh, China's growth will further uh, slow down, and that might throw down the whole uh, China's rise uh, scenario. But again, if you look at the macro history uh, trends, then China's slowing down or rise is, um, in, in a sense, is slowing down is temporary because. China is already the second largest economy in the world. It's the largest economy in Asia, uh, doubling or even tripling Japan's size. And if you compare the two uh, growth rates uh, between China and Japan, then certainly China would further, uh, you know, uh, surpass Japan as uh, you know a major, uh, at least a superpower in Asia. But when it comes to U.S.-China relationship, it's more difficult. It's more nuanced because U.S. is still a resilient superpower, in my view. It has technological, military, cultural, institutional, and many other advantages. There was so, a, but there was an, an op-ed in the New York Times by Raphael Reif, the president of MIT, mm-hmm. talking about exactly the point there, saying that mm-hmm. uh, you know China is no longer this made-in-China stereotype that we've come to know in the past and that uh, innovation-wise, technology-wise, it is a front-of-frontline player as well. Is that going to be enough to sustain China, even though, of course, it does play second fiddle in many respects to the United States, which has a much longer, richer history in terms of leading from the front on innovation? Indeed, that's the hope of the Chinese government, I would say, because without technological uh, advancement, or technological change, China would uh, most likely be stuck uh, with this, uh, <laughs> you know, old mode of growth, meaning exporting, manufacturing uh, products, so on and so forth. That's the old model of growth. That's not uh, sustainable. That's not compatible with China's future, uh, you know, uh, projects. So that's why China wants to uh, go ahead with this. Uh, uh, made in China 2025 project and other projects because I think that that's the right thinking because they understand correctly without technological advancements, 
you cannot surpass the U.S. as the major uh, global uh, economic powerhouse. And, but that would take a, maybe a generation and even longer, and that would be a very uh, difficult uh, undertaking. You've hit the note there when you mentioned uh, Made in China 2025, and for anyone, I'm sure everybody knows what it is, but for anyone who doesn't, it's the policy blueprint <clears throat> that was unveiled by Premier Li Keqiang, I think three years ago now, and that's with an aim and the long view to nurturing uh, Chinese technological capacities and growth industries. We're looking at robotics, we're looking at AI, and when I think of AI and robotics, I think, of course, of the United States. And in a way, is it a technological race? And therefore, is the larger point of this, therefore, an attempt by the American administration to dismantle it so that it can ensure that it stays somewhat ahead? Uh, yes, the U.S. Uh, government might have that objective right now, because if it's worried about the future, of technological race between these two countries, and you better, <laughs> in a view, in my view, stop the uh, rival uh, before it becomes too strong. So that that's not unreasonable from a national perspective. But on the other hand, if we look at globalization as a whole, we understand today we cannot rely on ourselves alone. We needed to rely on technologies from other countries. We needed to rely on scientific knowledges from other countries and even scientists from other countries. So in a way, it's ironic because in this new era of globalization or global supply or production chain, you really have to work together in order to make scientific advancements. So even if there's competition, it doesn't mean you should cut off uh, you know, connections with other countries. So it's a very difficult, delicate balance to keep between competing with your rivals, so to speak, and also cooperating with your rivals. But I don't think we, we have seen a very good um, uh, strategy yet uh, from any country. But it's a, it's a real problem facing all the governments. You've described it so clearly and concisely for us here in talking about globalization and talking about, in some ways, liquefied borders. We don't live in a world where lines are as defined as they were once. And of course, the global supply chain, where, for example, if you look at the example of an iPhone that we have in front of us over here, uh, the components come from many different countries. It's not as simple as one or the other. It reminds me, though, when we talk about this technological race, not only in its phrasing, but in its spirit and ideology, as the space race that we saw many decades ago, more broadly between the United States and the Soviet Union and its uh, Soviet-led satellite states as well. Um, do, are we in danger of reverting to that mindset, that limited, restricted mindset, even though borders aren't as marked as they were back in, say, for example, the 60s? Uh, there's a certainly the danger uh, in going backwards. And, and some people would even say it looks like there is a sort of tendency <laughs> toward that old type of you know Cold War mentality uh, in some corners of the world. But I think today's world is different. We are very, very unlikely to go back to the old style Cold War, mainly because after 40 years of globalization and all that in the global supply chain, so on and so forth, 
it's it, in my view, it's not impossible to go back, but the cost would be tremendously high for all the countries involved. So theoretically, yes, we could go back to the Cold War, but I don't think most of the countries today, even including the U.S., European countries, and China, Japan, would be able to sustain the pain uh, caused by this, you know, going backwards. So theoretically, it's possible, but practically, I think it's almost impossible to go back. But you hear this mentality, you know, talking over and over. That's true, but you don't see the real. Actions. I'm going to ask you about that because <laughs> I'm so happy that you say this. I'm sitting here smiling because you inject a tone not only of optimism but of uh, meaning and, and forward-looking,、um, so that we don't get stuck in the rut of repeating the same lines again. So, in that same spirit, I'm going to ask you. You're saying this, and you're of course not only incredibly informed, but you are informing、uh, many influencers themselves. Are the political leaders on every side, at different levels,、uh, working at the table with the same foresight that you have described just there? That I don't think it's necessary, likely at least, that we're going to revert to the Cold War mentality. Are they working with that mentality? Are we seeing the action that you just mentioned there? Well, unfortunately, I would say not every country or not every leaders are, are looking at the the same picture、uh, with the same perspectives. That's the unfortunate side. But if you look beyond the U.S., because so much attention is focused on the U.S. and the U.S. actions today, so it gives you the impression that populism and all that you know are affecting the、uh, policies. But you look beyond the U.S., you look at Europe, you look at、uh, Japan, India. And Europe, Japan, they have reached the recent agreement to、uh, basically move toward free trade.、Um, even though it might take some time to finally realize the free trade agreement, and China, South Korea, Japan are again making efforts to reach agreement in terms of free trade. Eventually, are so, they are they moving ahead at this pace, regardless of what? Is occurring on the U.S. trade war front, which is not only with China but with、right. the European Union and Canada and Mexico, some of its staunchest allies. And do they see this necessarily as an added advantage at this time to take、uh, to take this opportunity and to move forward quietly?、Uh, I think they are sensing the urgency right now, precisely because the U.S. is moving in a way backwards. They feel the urgency to move. Forward with these new trade agreements and maybe in the future new investments agreements, so on and so forth. Because in my view, they precisely understand the advantages of doing this. So that's why it's sort of ironic. Even though the U.S. the only economic superpower right now tries to move backward, but the consequences are exactly the opposite of the U.S. intentions. Other countries understand. No, that's not the way to go. So we we actually double the efforts to move forward with more、uh, free trade agreements, so on and so forth. I want to ask you that you used a phrase: the U.S. is working backwards. How is it doing that? Well, it's partly because of the domestic populism rising in the in the last、uh, maybe decade or so. I would believe after the financial crisis, and and there are deep roots uh, to that uh, situation because. Uh, after the financial crisis, a, a large portion of American workers, 
or middle income or lower income population have not uh, properly benefited from the lack of growth or, or medium growth in the last decade. So that gave rise to the domestic populism in the U.S. politics, which eventually was captured by uh, Mr. Donald Trump and uh, you know, uh, put him in, in, in the White House. And all of these policies we are seeing now are, in my view, part of, part of the results of that populism and uh, the uh, shocking victory of Donald Trump back in 2016. So, um, but you cannot uh, only blame those uh, voters because they are suffering from <laughs> some of the unbalanced consequences of globalization and the free trade. They have a legitimate reason to, to be to be frustrated, to be uh, you know, upset about this uh, globalization process as a whole. This is At Large, your weekly podcast on China, the U.S., and the world. Keep listening. I'm going to get to the soybean farmers in Missouri and so okay. and so forth. Um, I want to, again, you know, pick up on what you just said over there. Um, you talk about the uh, financial crisis. So let's work back uh, exactly 10 years to 2008. And in fact, the World Bank says that if we go at the current pace of the tariffs, we could see the global economy drop by 9% down to those crisis levels of 2008. So can I equate what you're saying there about 2008 and discontent and, and what followed on from there? Uh, and you saying that voters themselves are not necessarily to blame. Um, for those who think that Mr. Trump is to blame here, can we pin Mr. Obama to this as well then, since he was the president for 10 years? There is that uh, actually argument uh, blaming uh, President Obama for uh, the failure to uh, balance domestic uh, you know, benefits of globalization. Uh, but, I, but I think overall that's unfair uh, criticism. Uh, because uh, there are some other ways, there are some other policy options available even today to address those issues, to address those imbalances uh, resulting from uh, globalization and so on and so forth. But the problem is uh, President Trump is not uh, doing, uh, it's not taking those policy uh, suggestions, but he's choosing a rather different policy approach so you always have choices. You always have policy choices. Uh, none of them obviously will be panacea, you know, curing all the problems. But some policies are, in my view, better than other policies. And uh, uh, but I would not uh, completely uh, dismiss the argument that uh, during Obama's time, uh, something you know, could have been done to uh, prevent uh, some some of the negative consequences. But then again. Um, it's a complicated story. I was watching some of the testimony, and just to be accurate, so that we time stamp, because everything changes so fast mm. in this discussion, just that we time stamp this discussion, it's uh, taking place on the 25th of August in Hong Kong, 2018, of course. Um, let's go to some of the testimony that unraveled over the past couple of days uh, in front of the United States trade representative. And they created a very open space. In fact, they doubled um, the, the the time given, I think, to six days, perhaps, mm. um, for testimony, not only for um, American 
businessmen, but also for Chinese, Chinese ones yes. as well. Um, so it was a very fair and open space in that sense. And I was watching the testimony, and it was pretty fascinating of uh, this woman who runs a small to medium-sized chemicals business in New Jersey. And she was saying, you know, she's a Trump voter. Not only that, she would vote for him again. And in fact, she predicts that he will be the greatest uh, U.S. leader of her lifetime or of her adult lifetime, she said mm -hmm. more specifically. Um, but she says, you know, supporting President Trump does not necessarily detach her from being extremely concerned about her business. And she predicts that her costs are going to rise by X percent over the next uh, year alone. Um, this is a very, very fascinating um, sideshow that emerges <clears throat> of the voters. One side, you know, they love Mr. Trump, and that's fine. But at the same time, they're saying, we can love him, but we can also say this is not necessarily the right direction. The US Chamber of Commerce, for example, has a whole uh, side of their website, which is dedicated to tariffs and the implications and warnings and, and, and uh, trying to inform people with research-based evidence of the dangers ahead Let's talk about the voters. Is he still going to have the same level of support going into the US midterms, which is only three months away, but three months is still quite a long time away? Well, yes. Uh, in terms of midterm elections, maybe it is probably not going to be a major effect because, you know. Not. Not, because the pain associated with the trade war can, be, can only be shown like maybe three, four months, or even six months after the trade war started. So the official trade war started in July. So in 40-something days now. Right. So it's too early to gauge the uh, pain of the <laughs> trade war, even though uh, some of the individual farmers or consumers might already be thinking you know, forward into next year. They, 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 they already see the pain coming <laughs> in uh, when, when they think about next year. So, but in terms of real pain, it's going to be uh, felt by the uh, farmers or uh, consumers by the end of this year or early next year, 2019. The farmers or, or uh, even individual consumers or anybody affected by the trade war, they might vote based on expectations. So if they do not think this policy uh, will benefit them. Uh, well, this trade policy tariffs will benefit some people, maybe a small portion of the people, producers, competitors, uh, you know, uh, with uh, foreign uh, producers. But if most people do not believe they will benefit from these trade tariffs, they might, again, they might, uh, they might not stop supporting Mr. Trump because of his other policies, like immigration and uh, religious or, or legal policies, but their level of support might decline when it comes to a more crucial election <laughs> two years from now, 2020. I think that's the most important thing uh, Mr. Trump is looking at, and his voters are obviously also uh, thinking about. So they'll look at the whole package, not right. necessarily take the trade war in isolation. Let's talk a bit about the purpose, because the stated goal by the administration of these tariffs is to rebalance the trade relationship 
uh, with countries and partners, including China, but mm -hmm. not limited to China. When you force a partner to retaliate and then they respond based on your action and then you therefore have a dynamic where you impose 25% and therefore I impose 25% back and and then we apply it to expanding uh, amounts of goods and expanding value as well. Uh, obviously, that doesn't really seek to address the imbalance that they said they were going to address in the first place. So what do you think the real goal is here, politically, socially? Um, there are always multiple goals uh, from the U.S. perspective when it comes to U.S.-China trade relationship. Obviously, rebalancing the trade relationship is one of the uh, top goals of this uh, current uh, ongoing trade uh, war. But also there are other goals such as uh, uh, having uh, have China uh, open more to the outside investors, including uh, communications, banking, insurance. So it's about market access. It's all about. It's also about uh, China's technological uh, developments, as some people would call it, the technological race between these two countries. So you you might not be able to stop your rival from developing new technologies, but at least you hope to slow down the process so you can maintain your advantages as long as possible. There are other uh, goals such as um, addressing you know, or readjusting China's domestic economic system in the sense that China's domestic economic system is not a market economy <laughs> from the US perspective. So they want a fair competition between these two economies, then uh, China needs to adjust its economic system so that that's more difficult goal. That's maybe a long term goal, not an immediate goal. But all of these together, I think, are all part of the large objective of the U.S. government. What do you think is going to happen next? Maybe next six months or next year. Okay, let's start. <laughs> Depending with the, on the let's start with the next three months. First. Next three months between now and the midterm elections. Yes, and then exactly. maybe we could look at six and twelve. Right. So. If we look at the next three months, my own personal view is actually a little bit more optimistic because I think right now both sides, particularly Mr. Trump, understand that the trade war is really hurting everybody. It's not benefiting any side at all because China is also a large economy. It's able to retaliate against the U.S., uh, unlike some maybe smaller economies where where we sort of have to uh, uh, you know cave into the demands of the U.S. sometimes, so the next three months will be more of a, a standoff, uh, so to speak. So neither side would uh, likely to uh, back down from their current stand, but neither side would uh, would be able to make. Uh, or claim victories because it, it, it's a you know standoff right now, um, but things might change after uh, the midterm election and after the end of this year, because mainly President Trump will face if the current trends uh, continue will face more domestic pressures. The current trend meaning the Democrat Party most likely will take back 
uh, one uh, the House, the Congress, one House of the Congress. So the, that if that happens, then President Trump will immediately face more political pressures from the Democratic Party, thus distracting him <coughs> from foreign policy issues like the trade war with China or North Korea or Iran. Because when you are internally very, very busy or you know, surrounded by all other more important issues, you're less likely to address some other foreign issues. So that's one very possible scenario right now. And then again, I think uh, both sides would need to find a mutually acceptable uh, solution <laughs> to somehow, if not end the trade war, but somehow uh, stabilize the trade relationship, not letting that deteriorate further in the next uh, six to nine months. Then we look at, say, August 2019 or even end of 2019. Yeah. My my view is by the end... Uh, by the summer of 2019, uh, this trade war would uh, come to sort of closure because by the summer of 2019, the U.S. politics were going into another major cycle, which is the 2020 presidential election. So sit tight <laughs> till summer 2019. Right. We have some good news. And there'll be good news for everybody because, of course, when we say good news, it's good news for all mm-hmm. when this trade war ceases it's not just for the united states or for china mm-hmm. in fact it's good for the whole global health of uh, the health of the global economy when i think of um this trade war since we have according to your predictions probably 12 months to go i think of course of the jobs that are at risk i think of the retaliation that one <coughs> action then triggers from the other i think of the health, as I said, of the global economy and of growth prospects going forward, choice and quality of goods, and therefore how that's going to impact not only consumers, but the ordinary uh, men and women and families and communities who are the faces of what we enjoy and what we need in our lives today. What would you want people to know from where you sit at the cusp of mainland China in Guangzhou, looking across to Hong Kong, but of course you have your own seat of influence in Europe, in Berlin. What would you want people in America to know? Well, I would say to them, if I had the opportunity, that two things. First, uh, keep the long-term view uh, of the world, (laughs) because this is important. Uh, Part of the problem today we are uh, facing now, I believe, is we are sometimes uh, short-sighted. We focus too much on the short-term gains or loss, and in in the process, we forget there are long-term gains or or some other benefits of uh, globalization or any other relationship. So this is important for uh, politics. But then again, we all understand uh, in, in politics, people tend to focus on uh, the upcoming election and then, you know the you know whatever you know the local events so they tend to forget the long term view of the country so on and so forth so my first advice would be to keep the long term view uh, at least to to balance your short term considerations that would be a little more uh, healthier in my view and the second thing is 
do not just focus on the local or the home uh, country or, or events. We are indeed, uh, uh, you know, living in a very different era now. Uh, a lot of people are complaining about the negative consequences or effects of globalization, but there's no turning back. There's no escaping from globalization. The real issue is how do we, how we can address the problems, uh, the negative impacts of globalization or interstate relationship. I think there are many, many things we can do and there are many, many things we can learn from each other, from other countries. Uh, even here, you know, sitting in Hong Kong, uh, the Greater Bay in the project, uh, I think is a good example. Even between Hong Kong and, uh, you know, mainland, and between Hong Kong and Guangdong, there is a need to learn from each other, to, to learn you know, more from uh, other, you know, neighboring cities or regions. So I think we should not be Procure about uh, you know global affairs by focusing on what's happening around us, which is obviously important. But I mean, in this era of globalization, in this era of interstate relationships, you need that global or global <laughs> perspective, sort of combining the global one and the local one, and that would be another healthy one. Professor Chen Dingding from Jinan University and the Intellisier Institute, you have injected such a note of real optimism today. So all it leads me to do is to wish you an excellent day ahead as you head to the train and travel back to Guangzhou. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, James. You've been listening to At Large with James Chow. For more episodes, you can go to chinausfocus.com forward slash podcasts. You can also subscribe at Google Play Music, SoundCloud, and more. Thanks for joining us, and thank you for tuning in.